G'day, mate. Forty here. I've just been having the most delicious day. Like I had a good night's sleep. I woke up refreshed at 3 a.m. What do you like to do at 3 a.m.? I like to blog about Dennis Prager. I mean, this has been awesome. I hadn't thought about Dennis Prager in years. Then I just started listening to him, and it's just opened up, you know, all these fertile lines of inquiry. I made two blog posts that are going to absolutely change your life. Uh, one on could it happen here, question mark, and another one analyzing Dennis Prager's phrase, the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. Is that really true? And I've just been so happy all day. I've just been walking around with the attitude, LOL, nothing matters. But in a good sense, like you could use that in a bad, bad nihilistic sense. But for me, it was like a good sense of LOL, nothing matters. Now I can sing like nobody's listening. I can dance like nobody cares. Like I can love like I've never been hurt. Tucker Carlson tonight, say what you will about elected Democrats, but they know where the power is. They're like truffle pigs for power. No matter how thick the forest is, they will find it. Here's one example. In his very first hours in office, literally on Inauguration Day, Joe Biden named a new head of the criminal division at the Justice Department. Now, Biden spent that same day, you will remember, lecturing the rest of us about equity, meaning that straight white men are bad. And yet, strangely, the person he chose for this job was not a member of a racial or sexual minority. He was instead a highly privileged straight white guy. He was called Nick McQuaid. Nick McQuaid went to private schools. He rode at Wesleyan. He went to Columbia for law school. He was definitely not oppressed, but that did not matter to Joe Biden. Some jobs are too important for affirmative action. McQuaid's main qualification was being the former law partner of Hunter Biden's criminal attorney. In December of 2020, Hunter Biden hired a Latham and Watkins lawyer called Chris Clark to defend him against potential federal tax charges. Just a month later, Hunter Biden's dad hired Chris Clark's partner, Nick McQuaid, to oversee the agency that could bring those federal tax charges. That seems like an obvious and glaring conflict, but no, Nick McQuaid did not recuse himself from the Hunter Biden investigation. And so, more than two years later, not surprisingly, no charges have been brought against Hunter Biden. And it's not for lack of evidence. Okay, who cares about that? I just can't. I can't sustain any interest in, in Hunter Hunter Biden. Okay, but I mean, there's a good side to LOL, nothing matters. Like, there's a happy side to LOL, nothing matters. Like, I mean, who cares? Like, love like you've never been hurt. Where does that come from? Love like you have never been hurt. All right. Uh, I mean, just it's just a, a beautiful quote. Like, dance like nobody's watching. Love like you've never been hurt. Sing like nobody's listening. I mean, do a live stream like nobody's watching. Live like it's heaven on earth. I mean, Rabbi Akiva in the Talmud. I, I mean, LOL, nothing matters. All right. I mean, five people are going to watch this show. Another three people are going to listen to it as a podcast. And LOL, nothing matters. Like, does it really matter if five people or 500 people watch the show? LOL, nothing matters. Now, I could sing on tune, and I got huge news. I just discovered the greatest singer ever and the greatest song that has ever been sung, all right? And I could sing the greatest song that's ever been sung for you, but if I was to sing it on key, I I, I would, you know, run up against copyright, you know, problems. So that's the only reason that I ever sing off key, right, is so that I avoid. I deliberately 
distort my voice because I'm that powerful to sing off key so I don't trigger, you know, copyright. Yeah, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dance like nobody's watching. I mean, the greatest singer ever. I mean, she's fantastic. And, and she, was go, she's, she was doing hits from age 18. She is the, the best-selling... Uh, she was the, the, the best-selling... She is the best-selling soprano ever. I mean, she's she's amazing. And her name is Sarah Brightman, right? She's been going since 18. She's the best-selling soprano ever. And she just did this amazing, amazing song that I've listened to about 50 times. And I know, oh, you're supposed to, you know, lead with the news. People want to know what's happening. But I am a man of culture. I'm a man of elevated tastes. And this is just the most awesome song, and I can't play it for you. I, I'm just going to hope that the, 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 the didgeridoo can, uh, can, can do it justice. I'm just hoping that I can do it justice. It's called Running. I mean, fantastic stuff. I mean, this is, this is the greatest song ever. This is me and you. And we are running to change the world where hope is shining through. Guy is green and blue. And we are running to save the world that we're about to lose. Yeah, I mean, this is about climate change. This is about riding the bus. This is about using electrical vehicles. We'll be running. Watch it coming. Green is shining through. This is just the greatest song ever. Okay, everyone, love is rising. Shining through. LOL, nothing matters. This is me and you, and we are running to change the world. Where hope is shining through. Guy is green and blue, and we are running. Green is shining through. Is this the greatest song ever? The greatest lyrics ever? I mean, can you hear the distant beating, the passion? This is me and you, and we are running, everyone together now, to change the world. Takun Alam. This is about Takun Alam, where hope is shining through. Guy is green and blue. And we are running. Until green is shining through. I will wander through the desert. I will seek you in my hand. In the silence of shadows. In the palaces of sand. I mean, she is a classically trained singer. And she does disco. She does pop. She does music in all sorts of different languages. She... she uh, collaborated with Ufra Haza, that Israeli singer who died of AIDS. This is just the greatest song ever. In fact, I think I'm just going to sing this song for the next 90 minutes. I mean, it just doesn't get any better. Have you ever heard a greater song? I mean, I was sad and I was silent in the shadow of my soul, ever seeking the horizon for promises untold. I dreamed of silent oceans and I sang of waters blue with the crossing of angels brought forth to guide me through to a distant shore so welcoming. This is you and me, oh, me and you, and we are running.
I got my air conditioner going for the first time in like nine months. Right, Halsey English bought me this air conditioner. I mean, that guy probably dropped a thousand dollars of super chats on me. But did I let it change me? Right? Did I sell out? Did I go, oh, I can't afford, you know, to say the wrong thing? Did I compromise? No. No, I did not. I mean, have you heard of Sarah Brightman? Have you heard a song running? There's there's been nothing greater that has ever been sung in the whole history of humanity. I mean, this, this woman's just amazing. <laughs> I bet what his neighbors think he's got bad wind. Well, I'm the victim here. Do you think that I like expelling wind wherever I go? Do you think I like, you know, mounting gas attacks, particularly after all the trauma of that bit of unpleasantness during World War II? I don't like that, but I'm the victim here, man. But there's a solution. This is me and you, and we are running. There's a solution, guys. Since the beef organ capsules, man, the, uh, uh, the breaking of wind is like way down. I'm like totally within the socially acceptable uh, framework now. I mean, my life is just improving in so many ways. Yeah, even on the bus, man. Oh, man, I am just rocking out to this song. I am just, just having a blast. I had the most amazing wee-wee today in, in uh, downtown L.A. I was like, hello, out, nothing matters. So I'm just jumping around. I'm prancing around. I'm dancing around downtown L.A., and I'm, like, swinging from branches. You know, I was like, I'm jumping up, now grabbing the branch, and just wee, wee. And then I'm just, like, swinging back and forth on the tree branch, you know, trying not to hit homeless people and, you know, the polite good citizens of uh, downtown Los Angeles. But, I mean, just the most amazing wee-wees today like all over downtown LA because LOL, nothing matters, right? So there's like good nihilism and there's bad nihilism, right? Like some people, they're too conscientious, right? I've, I've rarely, you know, suffered from being overly conscientious. When in social situations do you explode? Oh, please, I'm a very respectable man. <laughs> I remember I had this girlfriend and, uh, and, you know, a few months into the relationship, I just started letting it rip. And she would complain about the gas attacks. And I said, don't you appreciate that I feel comfortable around you, that I'm willing to share with you who I really am, that I'm no longer putting up a false front? And she said that she'd rather I was less comfortable with her. Live and learn, but man, since I got those beef organ capsules, not a problem anymore. I, I'm, a, I'm an upstanding citizen. But yeah, like think of all the people who are just overly conscientious. Right? Think about the people who hide their light under a bushel. Right? Think about the, the people who are afraid to try things. Right? You know, think about the people who are, are frozen in fear. I live in Orthodox Jewish community, and that can be stifling. That can be intense. There can be a lot of disapproval. And like, LOL, nothing matters. And so you have to distinguish, all right, between LOL, nothing matters when that's appropriate. All right? Sometimes LOL, nothing matters is appropriate. Sometimes LOL, nothing matters is adaptive. Other times it's maladaptive. 
All right, sometimes, LOL, nothing matters. You know, who cares what people say is a good attitude when you're not doing any significant harm and you're not breaking any, you know, serious social faux pas. All right, it, uh, you know, it gives you space to sing, to dance, to, to create, you know, to unleash your soul. On the other hand, you don't want to take the attitude, LOL, nothing matters and hurt people. You don't want to damage people. You don't want to damage yourself. All right, you matter too. All right, you don't make amends when making amends could damage other people. <laughs> like you count too right you, you don't make amends if it's going to endanger your life endanger your welfare and you know obviously you shouldn't take the lol nothing matters right to to the extent where it sets you back but you know some people just get so frozen right by their excessive conscientiousness and i mean what a great singer sarah brightman wow wow and running tell me if i'm wrong like I, I am the world's biggest air supply fan but now running i realize is an even better song than making love out of nothing at all <laughs> it's like whoa 40 you, you're just blowing me away here so you're wondering like is there anyone who could be advanced who could be rendered more adaptive uh healthier happier you know more upstanding more moral make more contributions to the world with an lol nothing matters attitude yes there is so even if you hate dennis prager even if you loathe dennis prager even if you despise dennis prager if even if you see right through dennis prager even if you can't take dennis prager no more dennis prager pompous no no bore blowhard all right he does this absolutely adorable show with uh julie hartman who's a 23-year-old uh, graduate of uh, Harvard University. And as men age, all right, as we get older, we need adoration more. Like when I was when I was 43, you know, I didn't need the adoration nearly as much. But now that I'm in the, the king stage of my life, when I look back on my long list of accomplishments, when I look back on, you know, some of the great movies that I made or, or starred in, when I look back on how I was, you know, certain esteemed publications, a whole of the month, right? I can just sit on my throne, so to speak, and like you want a little adoration. And so Dennis Prager's like 74 now, and he just drinks in this young girl's adoration. So it's good for him. It fills him up. Like he's incredibly open, honest, human, vulnerable. You know, he, this is Dennis Prager at his best. And then she is adoring, but that's also good for her. She's got a mentor. This is like Dennis is 74 years of age, and this is you know his first friendship with a with a woman that he hasn't, I assume, uh, you know, courted romantically. All right, we're a very elevated show here, and this really brings out the best in him. It brings out the best in her, and these guys are great together. But she is excessively conscientious, and so I, I think she would benefit from an LOL. Nothing matters. But if something is unique, it is unique. The openness and honesty and exploration of life, not to mention the age difference, which one would think on paper is significant and turns out to be essentially insignificant to both of us, which and it's really beautiful. It's a human show. That's the best way to put it. So anyway, I wanted to ask you, you finally have begun your own show. You don't, you're not calling it a podcast. Is that correct? I'm calling it a show because it's uh, live on YouTube and then it also is on the Salem News Channel and then it's in podcast form. So it's a podcast or a show or right. a streaming show. So how long do you devote to each? 
I devote about 45 minutes. And just like Dennis and Julie started off in the 30 minute to 45 minute range, I'm hoping that it will grow. But also, if I can be concise with the news and my commentary, I don't want to keep people longer than they have to. It's uh, Tuesday through Friday. So Dennis and Julie's on Mondays and then the remaining days of the week I'm doing timeless. So I am running my air conditioner at full blast. And tell me what you hear. I assume you you only hear the, the sound of silence, basically, because I, I came back to um, to using I'm using a Streamlabs uh, filter, noise suppression filter, but the like the low, the low, the low one, the little one, the teeny incy wincy noise suppression filter. So, hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. All right. 10,000 people, maybe more people talking without listening. No one dares disturb the sound of silence. So I have my air conditioner just powering away about three feet from me right now. And talk to me. What do you hear? Oh, wait, it's back. You can hear the, you can hear the cranking. Oh, well. I thought the filter was, you hear the humming. It sounds like, I, it wasn't showing up. It wasn't showing up before I did the show. And, and now it's, it's back. Oh man, that's embarrassing. Ah, oh, sound settings. So anything surprised you? Yes, the amount of work has surprised me. I thought that it would be comparable to guest hosting for you because when I guest host for you, it's three hours. But what I realized is that when I guest host for you, it's three hours, but then I'm done for the week. You know, the next time I guest host mm -hmm. for you will be maybe two or three weeks later. With this, it's every single day. And also when I guest host for you, even though it's three hours, having the commercial break really helps sure. because it, it it's allows, a breather. it's a breather, it's a breather and right. it allows for a natural transition. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're just sitting as I am on, on the set and, uh, and no callers. Well, actually, yes, we will start introducing college. Oh. We've only had three shows, so we've right. decided. Well, that's interesting. But yeah, oh, yeah we have a call-in number. You will. It's you live, will. yes. Oh, that's awesome. And I'll call in. <laughs> that Dennis, would be fun. You don't need to call Dennis in. from LA. You can just walk 15 feet No, 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 I'll call sit in. sit down. I'll surprise you one day. But we, so I just sit in front of the camera, and there's no commercial break, and I'm just talking for 45 minutes straight, and that's a lot harder than, at least for me, than three hours with commercial breaks because well, and, of the and, lack of natural well, transition. Well, the daily issue. Yes. So... This is a, a very responsible girl. She talked about how she used to, uh, she was one of the, the best swimmers in California when she was young. Apparently, she also did uh, water polo. She would uh, train as a swimmer from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. every weekday. She went to an elite private school in Los Angeles. She said that she had, uh, on average, seven hours of homework a night. I mean, just incredible levels of conscientiousness that uh, are just mind-blowing to me. But as a result, she's got crippling levels of anxiety. She says she doesn't know how to have uh, sober fun. And so there are lots of people out there who would benefit from, LOL, nothing matters, right? And some people, right, like people in New Orleans, right, a lot of people in New Orleans, the, the attitude of let the good times roll and LOL, nothing matters, would not be so healthy, right? So other groups are, you know, excessively conscientious, excessively cautious, you know, ex excessively inhibited and some groups right would benefit from lol nothing matters and uh other groups would uh, would benefit from more conscientiousness now it's really hard for me to try to pick out like which groups would benefit more from lol nothing matters but i'm gonna look 
because we're friends here, we're so open. And I was just having an amazing day, like listening to Sarah Brightman, like all day, listening to running 50 times over, walking the sunny streets, like 80 degrees, gorgeous day in downtown LA and just uh, beautiful, beautiful women. I'm walking down the street, listening to Sarah Brightman sing running. And there's this you know, gorgeous Asian woman walking towards me, young, beautiful, uh, not wearing a bra. But like, LOL, nothing matters. You know, I just let my lustful impulse, you know, just flow through me and go on because like, LOL, like, you know, what would be, you know, five minutes of bliss, you know, compared to spending eternity in the bosom of God? It's like, LOL, nothing matters. Like, okay, she's not wearing a bra. Like, am I even noticing? Like, do I like pay any attention to, you know, what's underneath her shirt? No, I was like, LOL, you know, the, the world of Gashmias, right? The world of Gashmias, the, the worldly things, the earthly things, you know, the flesh and the, the devil and like, LOL, none of that matters. Like, I, I live in the world of Rukhnias, the world of, of spirit. Like, I, I dwell in the bosom of God. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a vessel for God. It's like, LOL, these worldly, you know, Asian temptations, like yellow fever. Like, LOL, that doesn't matter to me. So, yeah, it does seem like, I wonder if this particularly beautiful Asian woman would benefit from the LOL, nothing matters approach to life. But I, I do feel like some Asians and maybe some some Jews and some really uptight white people from uh, Scandinavia would benefit in certain contexts and certain situations from an LOL, nothing matters. Like it helped loosen them up. You know, it, we'd learn to, learn to dance, right? I, I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist, dancing's a sin. That's just like just enmeshed it in my system so if i were ever to hit the dance floor only with blokes right orthodox you only want to dance with blokes but like a lol nothing matters right it probably helped loosen me up and get me moving and grooving on the on the dance floor uh and then other groups i think uh we should not promote a message of lol nothing matters so we need to be sophisticated here and i'd like to think this is a very sophisticated audience like when we're not passing wind all right, we're a very sophisticated audience. Daily. So I have referred to my talk show, which is now 40 years, as a jealous mistress. It, it, I've never heard this. Yes, that's how I, I think of it. it. It's. So who is Glib Medley? So many people ask me, who is Glib Medley? Well, this is the most honest answer I give you. Glib Medley lives in the hearts of all right-thinking people wherever you go in this world. Look, there's, there's a little glib medley inside of me. There's a little glib medley, if you're a good person, inside of you. Glib medley is the embodiment of all that is wise, of all that is beautiful, of all that is true, of all that is virtuous, of all that is, like, virginal, all that is pure and innocent and untarnished, right? Glib medley lives in the hearts of the pure. Glib Medley lives in the hearts of people who love God. Glib Medley lives in the hearts of people who pursue righteousness. So Glib Medley makes more pithy, hilarious, wise comments in the chat than anybody who has ever walked this earth. Like Glib Medley is just a master of pith. I mean, he's just... It's just incredible. I mean, the medley is so pithy. I mean, I'm so pith that I can hardly walk.
he's and and so Glib Medley would be a, a great talk show producer. He is a treasure. He is one of the thousand points of light that sustain the United States. He is one of the Lamad Vavniks, one of the thirty-six you know righteous men that uh, you know keep keep the world rotating on its axis. Uh, Glib Medley is a gentleman. Glib Medley is a scholar. Glib Medley is a friend of the show. And when appropriate, Glib Medley is a critic of the show. So here's a life-changing event for me. I think it was in the fall of 1997. And uh, Dennis Prager had gotten a nationally syndicated talk show. And it used to be that he'd have the attitude, you can just call in on anything. So the topics would just bounce around or during the show. But then when he became nationally syndicated, he said, no, you need to talk about the news and you need to have one topic per hour. And then he did like six weeks on baby Richard, this uh, adopted boy who has returned to his birth father in, in Chicago. And then he was doing all these shows on secondary smoke. And so on a an AOL Usenet forum devoted to Dennis Prager with like, 40 people in the forum, I posted that I didn't like the direction of, of Dennis Prager's show, that uh, it just felt repetitious, and I, I just found myself tuning out more. And then <laughs> a few hours later, I got an email, for, I think for the first time in my life, from Dennis Prager. And he said, you know, I get enough criticism from people I don't know. You know I don't need any criticism from my friends and I was like whoa so if I am to maintain my friendship with Dennis Prager I cannot criticize him like now I, I'm sure if I had higher status then it'd be probably okay for me to criticize him but for you know like a, a nothing right someone with absolutely no importance like me to have the chutzpah to, to criticize this, this great man who is such you know, a blessing to my life. And I'm truly grateful for the, you know, the, the wonderful kindness that uh, he showed to me, the, the generosity, the, the wisdom, the guidance. Uh, I mean, he you know, really helped me through some very, very dark years. But then you know, realizing, whoa, I cannot criticize him and maintain any kind of personal connection. And that felt just like way too stultifying. I mean, imagine like, I, I, I get it. Like, you know, it's painful. Right? It's painful when people criticize you. It's particularly painful when friends criticize you. So I understand where Dennis Prager is coming from. But for me, it was like, oh, this is a straight jacket. So I just started I just started blogging, right? I think I made my first blog post July 3rd, 1997 on my AOL Lose De Dose account. And so I just started using Usenet and and thinking that now here I have got this open forum to the world, but I can't say anything critical about Dennis Prager. It's like that, that kind of precipitated the break. It's like, I cannot live in this straight jacket, you know, forget it. I'm just going to listen to a show and just blog my thoughts. And if I lose every single friend that I have in Los Angeles, which I was warned would happen, I will lose every single friend I have in Los Angeles. I want to say what I want to say because LOL, nothing matters. And so that was, that was kind of the impetus to, to the break because I, I couldn't imagine having an open forum to the world such as the, the internet and listening to Dennis Prager's shows regularly as I was doing. And I, I always thought, you know, I'd write about him one day. And the idea that I could only write about him positively is like, 
Heck no. Heck no. LOL. Nothing matters. I'm going to write what I want and I'm going to pay the price. And it was absolutely devastating price. It was such an intense price that, you know, I was spending money with a gypsy to, you know, try to, you know, to try to hold on through the pain of, of losing all my friends in, in LA. And wh why do I refer to it that way? It's very demanding, like a mistress might be. And it's jealous of all your other time. And obviously we're given vacation time, but the fact is pretty much I have to be on every day of the year, every weekday of the year. Mm -hmm. in, in a certain sense, it's the ideal job. It, it's three hours and, and my day is theoretically over, though that's a joke, but, but it's theoretically over. And that's a, that's a joy. Uh, and since I usually broadcast specific time, it's over by noon. To ha I, I am spoiled. I mean, the thought that I have the rest of the day to do whatever I want is, is a joy that I, I never cease to be appreciative of. Yeah, and the chat says, LOL, perky nipples. But bro, I have achieved like such spiritual highs, even though these are incredibly, you know, perky nipples, like really you know, strong, thrusting, you know, black nipples, teats, you know, pushing against her, her white shirt is like, you know, somewhat sheer white shirt, but it didn't affect me at all. Like, I was like, LOL, nothing matters. Like, why would the world of Gashmias? You know, why would like five minutes of intense pleasure, you know, count for me when I get to spend eternity in the bosom of God, that I get to walk around as a vessel for God when, when I see that, you know, there are crematoria going up in Beverly Hills, that, you know, we are living in a, in a civil war, that we're becoming more like Nazi Germany every day. Like what do we, an incredibly perky pair of thrusting nipples on this beautiful, and she looked really smart and intelligent, like, what does that matter to me? Like, that's all gushmius. That's all, like, worldly nonsense. I, I've even completely forgotten about it. Just, like, just like flowed through me, and that was gone. Like, LOL, nothing matters. The world of, of lust. Like, what do I need with the world of, of lust and beautiful, perky young women? It's like, LOL, the world of gushmius doesn't matter compared to the rewards of rookie. It's like, what would be the pleasure of, like, dating this beautiful young woman? It's probably not an Orthodox Jew judging by her outfit and like wh where would the pleasure in that be compared to the pleasure of picking up you know a volume of talmud it's just it wouldn't rate mate but every day it's it's demanding yes i mean i come in i film this and then i go home and literally the the rest of the day and the the entire next morning tomorrow? is is a hundred percent devoted That's towards right. the next show see i mean i don't want to I don't want to be bothering uh, Julie Hartman. She seems like a really nice girl. She does not need any 40 in her life. She doesn't need to know anything about Luke Ford. She'd be better off never hearing the name Luke Ford. She's got, you know, she's on a great wicket. She's going in a great direction. She's got a great thing going. But like the, for, for Julie Hartman, a little bit of two, three hours a day, LOL, nothing matters, right? Would be fantastic, right? For someone as dedicated and conscientious and, you know, really tough on herself, right? She would receive so much benefit. I mean, but don't listen to me. I'm a nutter. Like, I'm, I'm bonkers. I'm, I have no accomplishments. I'm, I, I'm not important. Like, Julie, do not listen to me. But someone like Julie would benefit greatly from an attitude of, at times, you know, in appropriate circumstances, in appropriate situations, like, well, nothing matters. It's like what, what Dennis Prager says, husband and wife outside the bedroom should be making love constantly, and inside the bedroom, they should be banging, right? So there's a time to be very conscientious and, and rigorous, right? 
if you're a brain surgeon, right? Be conscientious and rigorous. But when you're done with your brain surgery, when you're on Julie time, then it's appropriate to have an hour or two or three a day where just like, what's that saying? You know, LOL, nothing matters. I mean, there's a time and a place for dancing like nobody's watching, loving like you've never been hurt, sing like nobody's listening, you know, live like it's heaven on earth. LOL, nothing matters, right? People, people like Julie Hartman would really benefit from a few hours a day of LOL, nothing matters. You so you like will love this. You know what I say to you when young people have asked me, oh, I'd like to be a talk show host. How do I know if I could do it? You know my answer, right? No, I don't. Oh, you'll love this. I've been saying this for decades. I say, listen, there's a very good way to test whether you can do it. I want you to sit alone in a room, stare at a wall, and be interesting for three hours. It's hard. And what? And half the time they go, mm, maybe it's not my profession. And another thing that I've chosen to do on my show, Timeless, is I don't have a desk. And I, I just, it's like you with your fireside chats. I just sit in the chair and look directly at the camera because it was really important to me to have a direct line with my viewer. And I want my viewer to feel like they're sitting across from me and just having a conversation with me. I think I underestimated how extraordinarily hard that Okay, this is amazing. All right, this is, this is, look, be serious. Don't be glib. You know, you want me to move away from LOL, nothing matters. Okay, you, you got to see this. This is her, I believe, first appearance on the Dennis Prager show. And she went into a depression and a tailspin after this because she lost most of her friends and she thought her life was ruined. This is amazing. Entirely because of COVID? I think a lot of it has to do with COVID, but I think a lot of it is because, and this is something we talk about a lot, and I know you talk about on this hour, men don't ask women out anymore, especially at my age. Hookup culture is very prevalent um, among people in their early 20s and their teens at college. So I think a lot of it really has to do with that. It's just not the culture anymore to court. It's the culture to hit on someone and then have a one-night stand with them. So he is more likely to hit on her for a hookup than for a date? Yes. That's absolutely. That is just fascinating. I can't emphasize that enough, how prevalent the hookup culture is. It, re it really, it's everywhere. So give me the line that would be most obvious. You know, wh hey, you know what? We've been here a couple of hours. Why don't you come to my place? What, 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 what are the mechanics? I don't mean the mechanics of the sexual act, the mechanics of, of the getting the, the girl to, to engage in the hookup. I think pro you're drinking at a party right. and then you, you start talking and you, you know, kind of go into a corner and talk for longer and then, you know, party's over. want right, to head back. Right. But just again, I'm trying to understand the logistics. Is come back to one's apartment, to one's dorm? Dorm, yeah. But isn't the dorm room shared with another a roommate? Yes, and that roommate is sexiled. They are exiled for sex. They are sexiled, mostly. <laughs> See, I'm glad I asked because th there was an, there were answers. Yes. How long are they sexiled for? Sometimes the whole night. Where do they go? Common room, couch. They crash at someone else's dorm. It's it's really not unique to where I go to school. This no, is, I don't this think anything would be. You know, I don't think it'd be unique at all. If it was unique, right. it wouldn't be worth uh, worth asking you the questions. The, the guy or the girl who's sexiled, they, they they just know this is you know par for the course. This is the way life works. Or are they a little ticked off? Well, the one who is sexiled, they may be they may sexile their roommate in the future. So it's kind of like a give and take. One night you're sexiled, the other night you sexile. Does is it usually in the boys' room? Yeah, I would say. Interesting. Why do you think that is? That's a really interesting question. I think maybe there's an element of masculinity to it. Right. I think that's true. Uh, it can't be a coincidence. It right. should be fifty-fifty. Mm-hmm. So more often, the male roommate is sexiled. Mm -hmm. Okay. Will, in most cases, the girl stay over the whole night? Yes. Do you do you know girls that have engaged in, in a hookup? Yes. Okay. Uh, I have no idea what the answer is, and you may not have one. As a general rule, are they happy afterwards? 
Look, it really depends on the individual, obviously. There are some girls who, who want to participate in that, and they are happy. And you know what? Good for them. I'm, I'm, I'm not judging. I'm, right, I'm trying to learn. Yeah. Of course, right. I know you're not, but I just want to say for the record. Right. However, I have a lot of conversations with my female friends about this. A lot of people are not happy with it, but they feel that they have to participate in it because it's just so common. And I, I actually had a really inter- interesting discussion with one of my friends about this the other day where – it's this weird kind of feminist idea that men and women are the same, that they want the same things, that they both want sex to the same degree. And that's just not true. I mean, of course it depends on the individual. But I think the reason why women participate in the hookup culture is because we've been fed this fem- feminist nonsense that, that we have the same inclinations as men most of the time. And I think that's very harmful to women, ironically. In this quest to be empowered, a lot of the times it's degrading. As uh, she explained on her first appearance on the show, which was very dramatic for reasons that those who listen know how my ideas touched their life, and I am very grateful that they did. But that's not the subject now. The subject is men and women of her generation. And then I asked you, among the women you know, do any regret? Or are they, I think I even put it less dramatically, are, are they happy that they did it? And you say it's a mixed bag, which I think is resonates with me. And then you went into the idea of feminism having told women effectively you're just like men and can have emotionless sex non-committal sex just as readily and enjoyably as men can and then you use the term empowerment take it away well it's a phony sense of empowerment and the point that i want to make is that this all leads back to the modern definition of feminism that i think is very harmful as we're saying that to to teach women that they are the same as men of course that you know they're equal to men women are not inferior to men that's a very separate conversation but they are not the same as men they have different inclinations. They have different desires. Again, it, it depends on the person, obviously. But that is what fuels so much of this hookup culture. It's this idea that we are the same. And I think for a lot, I think where this really comes from is that for such a long time, women couldn't participate in a hookup culture, or they had to kind of stay at home and um, they couldn't be promiscuous. So I think there's this, this idea that the very opposite of what was once considered oppression is now empowerment. What was once considered oppression is women not being allowed to be promiscuous. Now, the very opposite of that, promiscuity, is considered to be empowerment. And that's a very harmful, in my view, way of looking at it because that's just not true. This is what I'm trying to say. Equal is not the same. Men and women are equal. Men and women are not the same. That is what modern-day feminism fails to account for, and that is where the root of this problem is. I read constantly that there is the, the, the largest percentage of females of college that we have any records for are depressed. Is that true? Oh, absolutely, and high schoolers too. I think I think it's a it's a greater problem than the hookup culture, though, which is a separate conversation, not for the male female hour. I do think a lot of it has to do with with male female relations, but I think a lot of it also has to do with homework and the and the pressure to get into college and the pressure once you're in college to land a good job in this hyper um, competitive secular world where we live in, where there's no purpose beyond yourself. The only purpose is to achieve to get to the highest level to land in an elite institution or an elite job i think a lot of that is what fuels the depression but bringing it back to the topic of this hour i think a lot of it too has to do with male female relations i can tell you as a woman it is depressing to me that i have not dated yet in college that is really depressing to me you want a connection before something physical yes why so do you think that that comports with female nature or is it idiosyncratic to you i'll get your response when we come back i think that comports with female nature totally but what's interesting is that if you say that, then you're not feminist. If you say that, then you're slut-shaming. I have a lot of friends who participate in the hookup culture, and the next morning I'll talk to them and they'll just say, ugh, I just don't feel good. I feel used. I feel cheapened in a way. But then if you you know, come out like I am on the radio and you say, hey, you know, this, this whole idea of feminism that men and women want the same things and that you can just have sex with a guy and that's empowerment and that's feminism, if you come out and say that, then you're this, you have this primitive, antiquated, um, oppressive. 
Okay, question in the chat. What was Forty's uh, greatest walk of shame? Like, I'm I'm a bloke, right? There's there's no there's no shame for for, for blokes. But uh, I I moved to Orlando, Florida, with a woman who was 11, 13, 13 years older than me. So I was she was maybe twelve years older. I, I think I was like twenty seven. She was uh, thirty thirty nine, and I had told her I'd cook, and I did not. Yeah. And I did not end up cooking. And she st she started to find me kind of a, a millstone around her neck. And so to get rid of me, she went and spent the night with a previous lover. And so then I just started crying and crying and crying. And then I went, we went to synagogue and, you know, I went and sat off in, in a corner by myself. And I was just like crying all through the Saturday morning service. And she was sitting on the other side of the synagogue and someone like tapped her on the shoulder and said, your husband's sitting over there. <laughs> and then the rabbi saw her such a rack wreck. And so like he scheduled a counseling intervention and, and we did a counseling the next morning, but he saw that it was already over. So I moved in with, uh, some uh, eccentric people from the synagogue who lived across the street. And to get back on my feet, I thought, you know, I need to hit the uh, the singles ads. So there was this uh, dating service run by a Messianic rabbi. And I met a non-Jewish woman through this dating service. And uh, we had a very nice dinner. It was all very proper. Then I invited her to, you know, Friday night Shabbat dinner. And she came over and she met me, but she just felt things were a little off. And so she fled. And uh, I was really mad because I paid for her dinner in addition to mine. And I got home and I like I called her and I said, I'm not going to chase you. You know, she heard how angry I was. And anyway, she came back the next morning. She went to synagogue and you know, we spent there was like a whole special lunch. There was a Shabbaton, there was a special program and she kind of liked it. And then like there was just program all during Shabbat and then mostly Shabbat after Shabbat. I, I went back with her to her place and she was living with her mother. And, you know, we jumped into bed together and it was wonderful. And the next morning I, I get up and I, I, I walk out into the kitchen and her mother's there. And her mother says to me, she's a tiger, isn't she? <laughs> oh, before her, like the second woman I was ever with. All right. I... I was answering a bunch of singles ads and her, her mother had placed the singles ads for, for her e-cup daughter. And she like really liked my response. And like the mother was just so excited bringing over my response. And uh, so eventually, you know, I meet up with this you know, bountiful Jewish woman. And when I first meet her, I am, I am Shoma Nagia. You know, I do not touch the opposite sex, you know, and I basically, and I did not touch her the, the entire weekend. I mean, this was just most incredibly, she was like five feet tall and had e-cup breasts. But I was at a very spiritual place that I didn't notice that world of Gashmias. I was living very much in a world of, of Rukhnias, in the world of the spirit, in the world of Torah. I was, I was dwelling in God's bosom. Like what, what did I care about her e-cup bosom? when I was living day in, day out, you know, in, in the bosom of the Almighty. Like, I was just fully entranced with God's bosom, not, not her bosom. <laughs> now, I don't identify women by their breast cup size, but yeah, the first woman I was with was an A cup, okay? So this was like, this was like, you know, could have blown my mind if I wasn't so spiritually centered. 
Anyway, uh, things just took you know an amazing and astounding turn the next weekend, and I was like, I, I lost my my discipline, and and then not only did I lose my discipline, within a few weekends, I was wanting to do certain things, to which the daughter was like, you know this this young woman was very much opposed. It's like, no, I do not do that. We are not going to go there. That's like a no-go zone. And her mother, her mother said, oh, come on, get over it. Like her mother said to her that she should go to this place with me and do the thing that I wanted to do, even though (laughs) the the daughter did not want to do it. It's like her mother, like this is, her dad had like a garage full of pornography. Like her, her mother, you know, encouraged her to do this, this certain thing with me. And I'm an old fashioned Victorian gentleman. I can't be any more specific. I'm not going to, you know, go there. All right. I mean, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. Well, th- I guess that was her reaction, but her mother's reaction was, you won't do that. What are you, a wimp? Well, I didn't raise a wimp. I didn't raise a quitter. Hey, this is a great guy. You're not going to show him how much you really love him. I didn't raise you to be like this. And and a mother gave her like a, a very stern talking to. Like, you know, how dare you deny, you know, this this great, you know, moral convert to, to Judaism. How how dare you deny him this adventure, this this thrill ride. All right, that, that he wants to embark on. And she, she gave her daughter a really stiff uh, talking to. But I, I'm totally handicapped here because I'm just an old-fashioned Victorian gentleman. I'm not the type of bloke who, um, who can kiss and tell. Like, I just find that so vulgar, so unappealing. I, I think this is Julie Hartman's first appearance on the, the Dennis Prager show. And it was very persuasive. I contacted you and... I will say it because it's important that people know that my work touched your life. Hugely. And in particular, my book, Still the Best Hope, about the left America and Islam. And I only mention that because I want you, my listeners, to know the power of that book, which I I rarely mention. I mostly talk about my Bible work now. But if you want to understand the left, America, and the Islamists, the book is still the best hope. You have a theory about anger and your peers. Go ahead. Well, I've noticed in college, it's, it's been very fascinating to me to see the way that people react to conservatives. And I've noticed that there is just this visceral, fierce reaction to them. They have like a Pavlovian-like response to conservatives. You know the, the psychological study of where you course. ring the bell? Yeah. Yep. For them, they hear the word conservative and they like start foaming at the mouth. They just, they have this instinctive anger. And I think that a lot of the times they're sublimating their anger and their rage about other things. And they're taking it out on conservatives because that's kind of the socially acceptable thing to do. And I think a lot of the things that they're actually angry about are products of secular humanist environments. I mean, not entirely. It would be too simplistic to say that's the entire reason. But there are just there are a few features of it that I think are very harmful and f- fill people with a kind of emptiness that then they direct towards conservatives. One of those, and we've talked about this a lot, Dennis, is how I think my generation has really been robbed of optimism and that we've been, you know, it's been imparted to us that 10 years away, the world is going to be underwater. We're going to be in the midst of a you know, destructive climate crisis. It's going to end the world as we know it. People don't want to have kids. I've heard some of my friends say that they're afraid to have children because they don't want them to inherit this terrible world we're living in. You know, white Look at what Biden just said yesterday that you played on your show. Biden said that white supremacy was more lethal of a threat to America than ISIS or al-Qaeda. How does that fill anyone with optimism? I mean, you 
when when these leftists talk about the state of America and, and the state of the world in such draconian terms, that's really scary to young people. It doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about issues, but they are catastrophizing these issues. And I don't think they understand the harm that it does to young people. I th- yeah, so talking about how America's in, in a civil war, how America's turning into Nazi Germany, how America is already on the way to becoming like Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. That's not catastrophizing. That's not scaring anyone, right? Talking day in, day out, we're in a civil war. And, you know, the left are trying to destroy this country. All right, that's not catastrophizing. All right, could it happen here? It is happening here. That's not catastrophizing. All right, civil war, mass genocide, Auschwitz, you know, happening you know, on its way to happening, becoming a reality in Beverly Hills, that is not, I, I'm exaggerating the implications of what Dennis says. He doesn't literally say that Auschwitz is happening in Beverly Hills. But, I mean, come on, the whole ethos of right-wing talk radio is you are a victim. You know, everyone's aligned against you, everyone in power or the big institutions, but I'm going to fight for you. All right, so her, her entire critique here of the left, I think you could, you could make, could you not make, Am I missing something here? Is this not true about what Dennis Prager talked about day in, day out? Like, I noticed when Dennis Prager went syndicated, right? So when he switched from taking calls on any topics, when he switched from, you know, talking as much about, you know, religion and all sorts of uh, very topics, I noticed that I would emerge from listening to his show every day, like angrier than when I went into it, angrier, usually less happy, and therefore, you know, less effective at life. I think relatedly, young people are very risk averse. I think that we're, I mean, obviously, we're really afraid to say anything wrong lest we be called a name. I think, you know, we're afraid to write anything or speak or have anything on the internet because we've been told that it will follow us around for the rest of our lives and our lives are going to be ruined if we, you know, are out of step. That's not true. I mean, look at me. I've got crazy things on the internet and I'm thriving. I, I, I'm thriving, I tell you. So this is my magic hat. This is my magic fair dinkum Aussie hat. And I wear this hat because it has this very magical effect on me. I cannot be pompous when I'm wearing this hat. So I do have tendencies towards pomposity. I remember when I was like bedridden with chronic fatigue syndrome and like there was just like parade of women who'd come over to my house to comfort me. And uh, one of them, I she came and stayed for the weekend and I asked her like, how would she compare me with my father? And her analysis was that my father was not as pompous as I am. In any kind of way. And I think, crucially, the biggest thing I've noticed, and this is something I really learned from you and from your books, is that there is no reverence for wisdom anymore. We live in a really, really hyper-competitive world where people are very obsessed with climbing the socioeconomic ladder, getting into an... Uh, I think she lives in a hyper-competitive world. I mean, this is a woman did seven hours of her work a night. Uh, we have a large choice about what kind of you know world we get to live in. Uh, I'm not exactly hyper competitive. Like I remember, wow, was it uh, about 30 minutes ago? I had 10 live viewers. You know, now I am down to eight. But does it bother me? Does it wound me? Am I hyper competitive about my viewership? No. Like it's it's all hello <laughs> well, nothing matters. Uh, who cares if no one's watching? I mean, it's not like a bad thing. It's just like a very intimate group that we have. Like, we have a band of brothers, right? Those of you who watch with me today, all right, we will take over Western civilization. You, 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 
band of brothers. That's who you are. Elite college, you know, getting landing an elite job that something like the Bible, which is filled of wisdom, is like this antiquated old book you just throw out. Even even down to things like I, very few of my contemporaries I've noticed have hobbies or like read for fun or have these kinds of worldly perspectives. Well, I, I, Julie says that she does not have any of those things. She doesn't have hobbies. You know, she's so driven. She doesn't get to do much reading for fun from what... So I think she's she in large part talking about herself there. Suits and interests. And again, I'm not saying all people, but I've kind of noticed this among my generation. And I think it's because in a way we've become psychic amputees. We've eliminated parts of our personality, parts of our interests, because we're 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 not focusing on anything. Yeah, I think again she's talking about herself and then externalizing it and projecting it onto her peer group. That doesn't allow us to climb that ladder. And again, I think that's a result of the loss of wisdom. And that th that leaves people feeling really hollow, really. You can feel good, man. You can feel good inside. You, you don't have to feel really hollow. All right. You can live and you can love. You can ride the bus. You can, you can make enough money to, to get by. All right. You can heal the planet I, I mean they're they're just you can you can make amazing wee wees just you know jump up there grab that tree branch oh bloody hell i paid good money for this uh didgeridoo i should treat it with more respect i mean this is this is a very sacred instrument but you don't have to live in that hellscape that, that she talks about you can choose to check out and you can move to fortyville no, but where you live, like that hyper-competitive, not having, you know, hobbies, like you get to choose how much spare time you have, right? You get to choose how many responsibilities you take on, right? You can, you know, choose where you put your priorities. It's not a, a left-right thing, right? There's just as much catastrophizing going on in the right, particularly uh, on Fox News or on syndicated talk radio, right? It's not... It's not uh, just the left where people say are you know excessively concerned with the social status like nobody ever enhanced their status listening to luke ford hanging out with luke ford mentioning luke ford right I i've never enhanced anyone's social status but you know we're a band of brothers we're having a we're having a ball here so my god right so she lost all her friends after she she appeared on Dennis Prager's show. Not all, but you know, a great many. That is because when you, you know, when you have a desk here, first of all, you as a host feel a little bit protected with a desk in front of you. And also you can put a computer right in front of your face. So if you forget a stat, you can just right. look down. Yes. But I have to do this from memory. And it's, it's well, that's tough. my fireside chat to a certain right. extent. But yours is longer. Mine is a half hour. And half of it is questions. Mm -hmm. So, so, but, but I, I, of course I know the challenge you, you made for yourself. You could have had a desk. I, well, exactly. I did make it for myself because, A, again, I, I care about the way that the viewer perceives the show. But also, I really wanted to make myself good. I wanted to create this challenge for myself because I know that if I do a show like this for a year without a desk over time in my career, I really won't need one anymore. I want to become fluid without needing notes in front of me. So I kind of created that for myself. The reason you can do that, and I can't, interesting. I mean, I do it on my fireside chat, but it's still different. It's 15, it's 15 minutes, just myself and the viewer, and the other 15 is taking questions. But you is 45, you and the viewer, and it's daily. My, mine is once a week, my, my fireside chat. But uh, I don't have your memory. I, I simply have to make reference to what is on the computer, and I fully acknowledge it. For, for statistics, I'll tell you, I, I, I lose something on the radio, which is very embarrassing to me. Really? Yeah, yes, because of my... People need to understand everybody has challenges. So uh, in my field, 
of thinking, speaking. I am. I've always been challenged on the memory issue with names. It, you have. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's, I can. If you give me eight arguments against the minimum wage, I can recite them back. But if you tell me a name that I will have said a hundred times, I will still mangle it. So I, I can. I mangled the name of Randy Weingarten. is is an awful human being who has ruined innumerable children's lives, in my opinion. Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State said she was the most uh, uh, vicious woman in America recently. And, I, and, and for that alone, I came to deeply respect Mike Pompeo. He identified a villain. She's with the American Federation of Teachers, I believe it is. And I, I, instead, I gave a different name that sounds like hers of a tremendously wonderful woman. Oh, no. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to say the name because, I, I, well, I guess, should I say the name or not? Yeah, Roberta Weintraub, who... Same initials. Yeah, well, it sounds like Randy Weingarten in a it certain does. sense. It, it does. Uh, no, it's understandable, but it's still awful because... <laughs> I know. Roberta Weintraub is the opposite of Randy Weingarten, and she was the reason I got onto radio. She oh, gave wow. my name to KABC, my first radio station. She brought me. Right, so no one likes the didgeridoo, but LOL, nothing matters. Right, there's, there's a time and a place for this attitude of LOL, nothing matters, so you don't like the didgeridoo. Big deal. For them. And I have such permanent love and affection and, and respect for her. She, anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm just saying, Nate, oh, so you'll love this. Oh, so get a boomerang instead. So I was in, in a park in, in downtown L.A. And there was this black guy who was like throwing a boomerang around. And he was an American black guy. He wasn't an indigenous Australian. So he, he even has a website where he, where he sells boomerangs. And he was like teaching me how to throw a boomerang because he had a special type of boomerang that I wasn't really familiar with. So I, I first realized how I mangle names mm -hmm. when I was at graduate school. I was dating a girl. Her Did last you forget name, her name? Oh, worse. So no, it's no. Oh, Her no. last name was Last. Okay, that's a last name. And we had been dating for months. And we oh, went Dennis. we went to a party and I said, This I won't say her first name. This is so and so first. Did you think did you really think it was first? Yes. For how many months? No, no, no. Just then at the party. Oh, just then. Yes. But now now interestingly, she was very annoyed. She was hurt. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well nothing matters. I remember when I would get names wrong when I was, you know, prowling around on the on the love scene, on, on the dating scene. And I was, you know, hitting up all the Jewish singles events and I was missing names and mangling names. And one very wise woman told me, we remember the names that we want to remember. Have I seen the Aussie classic Muriel's Wedding? Yes. Excellent. Excellent stuff. So I should probably talk about something serious. Oh. So this is this is serious. Uh, Donald Trump's campaign this time around is incredibly top notch. Like he has hired the best minds and organizers on the Republican scene. And he's also lining up up to 50,000 Republicans to take over top governmental positions. So he is so far way outpacing Ron DeSantis and he, his team. OK, I'm not kidding here. His team is the best, right? He has assembled the best and he is doing a ton of, you know, old fashioned politics and a great article here in the New York Times. Heritage Foundation makes plans to staff next GOP administration. This is a great sign on the part of uh, the Republicans. So no matter the Republican, the effort has set up a goal of up to 20,000 potential officials in a database akin to a right wing LinkedIn. So if Republicans win the presidency, They've got Project 2025. It's a $22 million presidential transition operation at a scale never attempted before in conservative politics. It's being led 
by the Heritage Foundation, right? This is the group that's been staffing Republican presidential administration since the Reagan era. But, right, because Donald Trump had terrible staffing decisions during his administration, more than 50 conservative groups have temporarily set aside rivalries to team up with Heritage on the project. So this is real. This is serious. Republicans are learning their lessons, just like they've poured money into alternative media such as Rumble, right? So uh, Rumble's great, man. You, a lot more free speech on on Rumble than than on YouTube. So the conservatives are getting smarter in a lot of ways, and this is one of them. They are ready, right? They are ready to take power. And here's another thing that I find interesting in today's New York Times. So Donald Trump has found a way to connect with Florida's congressional delegation in a way that Governor Ron DeSantis has not. So Ron DeSantis is just incredibly awkward with people. His only friend is his wife. So New York Times headline, side letters, Mar-a-Lago dinners, Trump's personal touch in fighting Ron DeSantis. So, so many examples in this article of Donald Trump exhibiting the personal touch where Ron DeSantis has failed. So when Anna Paulina Luna's father was killed in a car crash in January 2022, she received notes from two prominent Florida Republicans. One was from former President Donald J. Trump, a condolence letter that he signed Donald. The second letter came not from Governor Ron DeSantis, but from his wife, Casey. Right, the letters meant something to Ms. Luna, who was endorsed by both Mr. Trump and Ron DeSantis in the House race she won last year. In the end, she has backed Donald Trump for president 2024. And why? She says Trump's operation is personal. Right? You take the time to actually get to know the people you're going to be working with, and that makes a difference. Right? So these different approaches to outreach underscore Ron DeSantis's political weakness as he finds himself in a heated endorsement battle with Donald Trump. Donald Trump has effectively wrapped up almost all the endorsements. Like he has like a hundred endorsements for every one that Ron DeSantis has. And this is part of a whole new approach for Donald Trump. Not only is his campaign team top notch, right? The best of the best, right? He is now playing the political game in the traditional way, right? For the first time. He, he holds a lead of 25 percentage points over Ron DeSantis in the 538 national poll average. Now, Ron DeSantis is struggling. And he has difficulty connecting with potential speakers, uh, supporters. He's traveling the country on a book tour. And uh, at an event in Michigan, he irritated Republicans, says privately he spent little time with the crowd at a, an event. He left another in the afternoon shortly after posing for pictures. So Donald Trump has collected 47 endorsements from Congress. Ron DeSantis, the former congressman, just three. So Donald Trump, all right, has run an aggressive and organized effort to gain support from House Republicans, right? And it is consistently Donald Trump who is closing the deal himself. He's making calls to lawmakers. He is writing letters to lawmakers, personal letters. He knows many of them for years. He's hosting dinners at Mar-a-Lago. By contrast, many Republicans in Congress say they have not heard from Ron DeSantis, right? So Donald Trump is learning to play the game. And then I love this other story. Prove Mike wrong for $5 million, Mike Lindell pitch. Now he's told to pay up. This is great, right? An arbitration panel ruled that the MyPillow founder had failed to pay a computer software expert who disproved his false election claims as part of a contest. So Mike Lindell, the MyPillow founder and the Trump ally, 
been a leading voice in pushing conspiracy theories about the 2020 presidential election. He must pay $5 million to a Republican Trump-supporting software forensics expert who debunked a series of false claims as part of a Prove Mike Wrong context contest. So Mike Lindell issued the challenge at a cyber symposium in South Dakota in 2021, claimed he had the data to support his claims that there was Chinese interference in the 2020 election. He offered the seven-figure prize to anyone who could prove the data had no connection to the 2020 election. So you had this software expert, Robert Zeidman. He successfully did so. And now Mike Lindell has been ordered to pay up. And so Zeidman has voted for Donald Trump twice, right? And he, he says a false narrative about election fraud is really damaging to the country. So this Zeidman, he's a 63-year-old. The arbitrators have ordered Mike Lindell to pay Zeidman within 30 days. So Zeidman is a pioneer in the field of software forensics. And he expected... It, it would take weeks to analyze Mike Lindell's data, but once he started going through the files, quickly concluded that Mike Lindell's data was bogus. He presented his findings to Mike Lindell's representatives in a 15-page report. And uh, this Zeidman, he does believe that there was voter fraud in 2020. The question is, how much was it actually enough to swing the election? And Zeidman says, I can't say that. So I think that is absolutely awesome and i don't think she should have been hurt but it doesn't matter it just shows you by the way i my... have to tell you i would be a little hurt oh okay I'm I very, well i'm happy you told me that i would i would think because you don't get hurt easily no i no i would quit this job if i got hurt no i'm kidding you would the, <laughs> the no, jokes the jokes that we make here you gotta you know no 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 but, but oh no no you would quit the job i thought because of the public right. reaction team yeah you, you'll get your, your your fair share of, of, of oh of, i mean of i already have you already have yes, yes. exactly so uh by I the way be, i would be a bit offended okay no no i'm very happy to hear hurt Okay, I'm happy to hear because it it, 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 it it means that I shouldn't ever think she overreacted. I don't think she Good. did, okay, that's with fair. respect to you. Anyway, my point was not about her. My point was about me and names. My brother has the same exact thing. It shows you it's, there's no question it's genetic. As he points out, he says, Dennis, so he's a very prominent physician, my brother. And <laughs> I will have seen a patient for years, and I insist that my secretary give me the person's name. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, you know, I totally get it. As I, you said, everyone has their that's their battles. That is exactly yep. right. Well, when I guest hosted for you a, a few weeks ago, I was mortified because I was talking about comfort women. I think I, I think I told you yeah, this. The, oh, I don't remember the Korean, uh, the horrible yes, use and of I said, women by the Japanese. And I said that they were Japanese women oh. and not Korean women. And I knew that they were Korean women. Of course you did. Because just, who, who would have been using them? Right. Exactly. So I just got confused, and I had all of these people writing into me, and it was it was during my history hour. Every time yes. I guest host for you or for another host, when I do history hour. When you do hour. this work, you, you're, you're going exposed. to mess up. Yes. Not only will you, but you're exposed. I mean, there's just no way around it. And another thing. Yeah. So last week when I was um, doing a timeless episode, I was talking about how many. By the way, timeless episode means timeless with Julie Hartman. Yes. So that's and how do people find it? I, I... People can watch it on YouTube as they can watch this show on YouTube, or they can also go on Spotify or Apple and, and watch it on podcast oh, form. Okay. Or if you want to go to the Salem News Channel too, which is an app, um, you can go there too. But I think the, the fastest route is YouTube. But anyway, last week when I was hosting. The... So this is an example of, of somebody who would benefit from the LOL. Nothing matters. All right, you live stream. You're going to make you know all sorts of mistakes, and. Like, there's no point in beating yourself up, all right? Just, uh, you know, oh, well, nothing matters, all right? That attitude has a very important use in in the lives of people who tend to be excessively conscientious. Uh, timeless. I was, oh, gosh, what was I about to say? What were we talking about? Forgetting. Oh, um, oh, yes. Well, last week when I was uh, hosting Timeless, I was talking about how when I, uh, a year ago at Harvard, went to the senior thesis meeting, so many people were talking about uh, writing a thesis and their topics were absurd. Their topics were like, I'm going to write about the intersectionality of 
uh, Guatemalan basket weavers in 1804. And when I was describing these senior thesis writers, I said everyone had these crazy niche topics. The point was I was trying I was trying to show how insane you know the theses are. But I but I was watching the episode back and I realized that I said everyone had these insane niche topics, and that's not true. Not oh, everyone had. Well, them. all right, everyone is not meant as no, a scientific not. statement of mathematical right. fact. Right, but still, you know how everyone hard I am Everyone likes myself. ice cream. We understand right. some people don't. Right, but still, you know, in this line of work, people will get you on stuff oh, like that. Oh, yes, no, you have to be very and careful. And so, I, I, I got to improve I, on that. Yes, so uh, I would today say virtually everyone, right. or nearly everyone, uh, yes. I try to amend my language to say most or yes. the majority, but it's hard. It it's is, hard when yes. you're live and you're trying to well, keep track of what you're saying. because we don't do that in private speech. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just the way it is. Okay. So I, I just want to salute you because it's, it's a gutsy thing to, to take on a solo uh, podcast like that. You don't have a co-host there. I mean, relatively speaking, even though this is twice as long, this is easier mm-hmm. because it's it easier is. for me. This is easier for me than my radio show. Mm-hmm. The, the, I, the, I fully acknowledge it. I want people I to... I have you. I know. I sort I of view mean, this I, as vaca- like yes. work vacation. Yes. That makes, when I, when Dennis and Julie right. rolls around, I'm like, okay, I can relent that, a little bit. That, that's right. I'd like to introduce you to Monorail, America's investment app that takes... Okay, thank you. But this is a sweet show. I endorse it. Post it. But on occasion, I would appear, for example, with Larry Elder. And I just remember thinking, all of my memory of names and and numbers is irrelevant. Because he remembers everything. Well, yeah, especially with Larry Elder. I'm with the living Google. So (laughs) it it was such a joy. So I have to take breaks from providing commentary because I'm trying to write down timestamps. And so I I went, you know, an hour through the show without writing down any timestamps. So now I'm trying to, you know, guess what were the the key timestamps. What what were the key timestamps? Like uh, Luke's Walk of Shame. I'm sure a lot of people... Going to be curious about uh, uh, Luke's Luke's walk of shame. I'm going to guess it was around the 35 minute mark, and oh, her her mum her mum reprimanded her for a lack of adventure. Right? I think that's a very tasteful way, very tasteful way to phrase things. Boy, to be, uh, you know, collaborating with Larry. <laughs> you say I'm a human recording device. No, he's, he he's, is a human recording device. It's astonishing to hear him. But you know, another thing I noticed with doing Timeless is that so. I'll first say that, that my goal as a host, I, I have two principal goals. The first one is to provide really fact-rich news stories to people. Like, I want to put a lot of facts in people's arsenals so they can walk around feeling more informed. But another thing I want to do, and this is why I named the show Timeless, is I want to turn to those more eternal, unchanging truths about life that are non-political. And it's so funny because I know that you, like me, prefer to talk about the timeless and enduring things. And it's just so funny because when I'm filming timeless, I can't wait for the news to be done. Like, I can't wait to get to the part of my show where I'm talking about that the, was the hardest ultimate challenge issues. In, in my radio career. My first years, I just said, call in on anything. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I loved it. We would go from the most personal issue to some political issue to some religious issue, some philosophical issue, American issue, international issue. It, it, it was great. And then when I got a national show, they said, look, it doesn't work quite that way. People expect to hear your take on what's happening. So I, I relented, of course, a lot, but not fully, because I still have an Ultimate Issues Hour, a male-female hour, happiness hour, and anything goes hour. That's four hours out of 15. And I don't devote every other hour just to news, but it, it is driven. Right. So that's when Dennis Prager's show, in my opinion and in my experience, it shifted from a show that either had a neutral or usually a, a positive effect on people to another you know, right-wing show that's all about how you're a victim and you know we're living in a civil war and you know auschwitz and nazi germany is right around the corner for the united states and you know catastrophizing all right because that's how you maintain an audience so when then dennis prager went syndicated when 
Dennis Prager increased his reach, increased his income, increased his status. All right. He simultaneously did that at the price of the American soul. Right, to the extent that people have taken him seriously since he's gone nationally syndicated, in my estimation, uh, more people have been damaged by Dennis Prager than, than benefited. Now, I, I absolutely believe that tens of thousands of people have you know, benefited from things that Dennis Prager has said or written, but this catastrophizing, this talk about you know, we're living in a civil war and you know, the Democrats are trying to tear down this country and you know, we're becoming like Nazi Germany, right? That, that catastrophizing and, and pushing of the victimhood narrative, it makes people less happy, less effective, uh, more angry, and essentially pouring poison into the American bloodstream. And so I had a good night's sleep up at 3 a.m. I was lying there listening to my, my iPhone. I'd leave my iPhone going all night, and I'd had a selection of, like, sleep. You know, the, my, my favorite songs and uh, instrumental pieces that were conducive to sleep. And so it was like 3.07 a.m. and I was listening to a, a tune from The Carpenters. And then I thought, wow, the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. Now, let me dig down deep to get to the bottom, to stay on top. And is that really true? So I got up at you know 3.07 a.m. I you know, tried to wipe the conjunctivitis out of my left eye, you know, all the, the gunk that had you know, piled up in my left eye. You know, stumbled over to my computer. I didn't do any prayer. I didn't do any meditation. I didn't do any positional release. I didn't do any strain, counter strain. You know, I didn't do any of the traditional things. I just got right to my computer, fired it up, and started blogging. Is it really true that the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen? Now, I am a small government conservative. Those are my inclinations, right? I got a lot of libertarian instincts. I studied economics at UCLA, which is kind of a libertarian school of economics the austrian school of economics the university of chicago of the west kind of a milton friedman approach to to economics so that's my background those are my basic instincts so i'm very sympathetic to this contention and I, in fact i want it to be true you know i like dennis prager he has a gift for aphorisms it sounds powerful it sounds profound it sounds like wow you're really getting to the nub of it. And you can buy this as a bumper sticker, right? The bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. You can go out and buy this as a bumper sticker, you know, slap it on your car. And Dennis Prager developed this in 2009. Barack Obama had taken over presidency of the United States. He had passed through, through Congress a moderate stimulus act that moderately increased the size of government and made plans to introduce Obamacare, which was basically over the course of uh, 10 years, a $2 trillion transfer from Americans who work and earn to Americans who don't work, don't earn, and don't pay so much tax. So Dennis Prager came up with this saying in 2009 that all sorts of Republican politicians such as John Boehner, who was then Speaker of the House and Congressman David Dreyer took up the phrase, and Hugh Hewitt, said uh, back in 2012 at the Baltimore retreat of the National Republican Congressional Committee in 2009, Dennis Prager gave this big speech. I had to follow him. I've now learned to go before Dennis, don't follow Dennis. So he gave this big speech, standing ovation. Uh, you know how intoxicating it is to speak? I've done little public speaking. I don't think I've ever had a standing ovation, but you know, get any applause at all as a public speaker. It's absolutely intoxicating. And so if you, yeah, positional release, let it be known, is in no way in conflict with no fap, all right? 
Positional release is strain, counter strain, physical therapy. There's no fapping involved. All right. So I, you know, I would love to get applause. I would love to have status. I'd love to have a nationally syndicated talk show, talk show, but, uh, I would like to think that I'm not going to, you know, promote victimization, catastrophization, and pour poison into the soil of America and say all sorts of things like this phrase, which does sound true, which does sound profound, which feels really good if you have a conservative or a libertarian orientation, but upon examination, it just falls apart. So you can give big speeches. You can get standing ovations, right? You can be applauded and you can have women, you know, throwing their panties at you, right? But it doesn't mean that you're saying the truth. And uh, Hugh Hewitt said, uh, Dennis, he turned around like Beethoven. He couldn't see that they were standing. I had to poke Dennis and say, turn around, look at the audience. What brought them to their feet was the saying, the bigger the government, the smaller the citizens. So it's a, a rousing remark, right? It captivates people. It resonates with people. It's a very popular thing to say to Republicans. And this is Hugh Hewitt's now speaking. I saw a grown man now, the hardest bit and the most cynical, the toughest to reach audience in the world. Right? It is an audience of radio program directors and general managers. They're absolutely cynical about talk show hosts because that's all they ever deal with. And most of them are prima donnas, talk show hosts, and they're very difficult to deal with. And so when you get a whole bunch of them, 100 of them in a room, it's a tough audience, maybe the toughest audience. However, the last time we were together at a Salem Broadcasting General Managers meeting, they were reduced to tears by my friend Dennis Prager because he talked about why he's such a fan of this radio network and of Christians. So you can reduce people to tears. You can make them you know, feel very intense things. You can make them feel pulsating. You can make them feel throbbing. Right? You can make them feel joy, ecstasy, despair. Right? But are you actually doing good? And uh, Dennis Prager said at the Ronald Reagan Memorial Library that Ronald Reagan was the first one to make me aware the bigger the government, the smaller the citizens. So this is my anti-pomposity hat. Like it helps me, you know, remind myself that you know I'm a fool much of the time. I'm a fool for love. You know, I'm an idiot much of the time. I have no importance. I have no, you know, illustrious line of, of accomplishments that you know no you know reason why you should listen to me the only reason to listen to me is because you know you get a little bit of joy or you know you like the the community here or you know occasionally i, I say something useful or you might like uh, you know occasionally i'll play you know good clips from from other people but I, i'm not important you know wearing wearing this aussie hat with the corks right reminds me you know i'm not important because the essence of life is family and if you've got room in your life after family, it's friends and work and interests, right? And pundits should be just a bonus, all right? And I, I see with almost all pundits of which I'm aware, the essence of their presentation is how important they are because they have all these insights into life that you don't have. And it's absolutely necessary that you, you, you know, get these insights so that you can save America. Okay, so... Is it actually true, right? This is a very popular thing to say to conservatives and Republicans. You can make bank with it. You can get status prestige. You can reduce people to tears. But, but is it actually true, all right? So is it really true that the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen? When you analyze it, it's absolutely preposterous. For example, just look at countries 
that have a smaller proportion of government spending than the United States and look at countries that have a higher percentage of government spending per capita than the United States and uh, do, what, what do you notice? And so I'll give you the names of those countries coming up. Uh, think about the defense budget. So in 2023, the Biden administration submitted a 2024 budget request of $842 billion for the Department of Defense. So if the Department of Defense budget was half as much, would American citizens be bigger? If so, how? You know, I don't see how American citizens would be bigger if the American defense budget was half as big. On the other hand, the American defense budget were twi twice as big. You know, how would American citizens be smaller? Like, I don't see how the size of American citizens would vary depending on the size of the defense budget, which is a large part of government spending. Okay, American states spent $538 billion on education in 2022. So how exactly would American citizens be smaller or bigger if the state spent half as much or, or twice as much? Right? I just don't think it, it computes. I mean, it's an amazing saying, and it sounds good, and it feels good, but I, I just don't think it's actually true. Does, does truth matter anymore, people? I'd like to think that we band of brothers, right? we 10 people who are watching this show right now, that we are dedicated to truth. Right? We have a nice little intimate gathering here. Okay, so American public school education basically produces pretty close to the best results in the world when you account for race. So Africans in the United States have about the best educational results of Africans anywhere in the world. Same with Asians, same with Europeans and Latinos. So how would American citizens be smaller or bigger if the state spent half as much or twice as much on education? I don't really see it. Uh, Skid Row is pretty small government. Uh, public restrooms in the United States tend to be poor, nasty, brutish, and rare. So if instead public restrooms in the United States were lavish and plentiful, would American citizens be smaller? Public restrooms in the United States provide a thick, luxurious toilet paper instead of the cheapest kind. How would American citizens be smaller? How are we enlarged by reduced spending on public infrastructure? Like if we spent twice as much on public parks or public roads, how would American citizens be smaller? Now, remember, my basic impulse is to reduce the size of government, right? I have libertarian small government impulses, so I don't want to make the government bigger in general. But I... What's even more important to me than my feels, what's even more important to me than pulsating, vibrating, attracting a big audience, bringing people to tears, having power, status, and prestige, is you know, through my very flawed vessel trying to seek out the truth and talk about the truth instead of telling people what they want to hear when it turns out to be lies. Like If we had nicer airports, how would American citizens be smaller? If we had more lavish public transport, how would American citizens be reduced? If Americans had Medicare for all, like all other first world countries, and I'm not promoting that, I'm just saying if, to make a point, how would Americans then be smaller if they didn't have to freak out about losing their health insurance when they lose a job? If we spent, say, twice as much on law enforcement and we had an accompanying rise in public safety, how exactly would we be smaller? If we doubled prison sentences for violent crime, and therefore we spent twice as much on prisons for violent criminals, how exactly would we be smaller? If we spent sufficiently on law enforcement 
that Americans could walk every street in this country at any time of day without fear of being a victim of violent crime, how exactly would that make us smaller? Like, I've spent approximately 12 years of my life in Australia, which has more lavish welfare spending than America. Australians don't seem to me per capita to be smaller, lesser humans than Americans. They have different values than Americans. For Americans, their top value tends to be freedom. For Australians, their top value tends to be fairness. So how, how exactly is you know, one value system here just inherently superior than the other? I, I don't see it. Like as a conservative, as a you know, libertarian-leaning bloke, you know I love the sound, I love the feels, I love the pulsating and the vibrating that goes with the bigger the government, the smaller the citizens, right? I could rock to that, right? Bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. I could dove into that. I I love it, but it doesn't stand up to examination. So what's more important? Saying things that feel good, saying things that get you an audience, saying things that make people happy, you know, but you're pushing a lie that is clouding people's understanding of reality? I mean, Obamacare has cost the federal government about $1.7 for the first 10 years, and I'm not a supporter of Obamacare, but let's say it only costs $300 million. Would Americans be bigger? If the full cost of Obamacare in the past 10 years has been $4 trillion, would Americans be smaller because of it? All right, the full cost of the Iraq and Afghanistan invasions have been placed up to $7 trillion. So if these wars had instead turned to profit, would, would Americans be bigger if the war had cost uh, twice as much or half as much? Now, would Americans really be that much changed? Let's say the American government spent money to house all of its citizens and ensure that all of its streets were safe and clean. How would regular Americans be diminished by that? All right, Dennis says, uh, big government makes less impressive people. People who are able to take care of themselves are better than people who rely on others. Well, we rely on others to police. We rely on others to build our roads. We rely on others to build our bridges, to operate our airports. We rely on others for our national defense. Right? There are all sorts of things where it's simply more efficient to do it through government. How exactly would we be better off if we you know, had tolls every block uh, on roads? if we use GoFundMe to raise money for national defense, right? Let's take the bloke who does zero housework, but he earns a million dollars a year, and then he relies on other people to take care of many of his parts of his life for him. Like, how is he worse? How is he less impressive for concentrating on what he does best instead of vacuuming, shopping, and tending to children? Like, I get to concentrate on what I do best by sending, you know, a third of my income to the government. So if you concentrate on doing the things you do best and you rely on others to do things that you comparatively do less well, like how exactly is your moral character diminished by that? If you hire someone to clean your house, how is your moral character diminished by that? If you pay taxes so government cleans the streets, how are you lesser for that? Right? If you rely on the government to provide parks, police, roads, schools, how are you morally diminished exactly? Right, Dennis Prager says the essence of good character is to take care of oneself. Look, we have to look after each other. It takes a village. Like, how are you not taking care of yourself if you leave much of life to government or to your spouse or to your community 
or to hired help while you focus on the things that you do best. I mean, imagine what a bleaker world it would be. Imagine what a poorer world it would be if I didn't spend as much time on live streaming. Like, imagine if I was out there, you know, cleaning the streets and paving roads instead of live streaming. I mean, think about how diminished your, your life would be. So if you feel entitled to public roads, if you feel entitled to public parks, if you feel entitled to a public defense, right, how does it follow that these feelings of entitlement make you ungrateful and filled with anger? Like if you make deals with people that in exchange for you providing X, they will provide Y, well, how does that morally diminish you? If a society votes and makes collective deals, that society will jointly provide certain goods and services such as parks and roads and uh, people will pay taxes and contribute to that and people have to work to pay those taxes, right? Like how are people diminished? If, if a society, a community decides on lavish public services, lavish public goods or moderate public goods, if the community decides that, how exactly are people made bigger or smaller by having nicer or fewer or rougher parks? Like when I'm in Australia, I notice by and large public facilities are cleaner and nicer than they are in America, right? Australians aren't noticeably angrier or less grateful than Americans. In fact, they, they seem on average to be happier. So Americans by and large work longer hours than Europeans. Like how exactly are Americans ennobled by that? I think for some people it is ennobling, other people it is degrading, and other people it, you know, it's a wash. Like. In my life, I've had periods where I've worked 100 hours a week. You know, I had years where I was bedridden. I've had hours where, years where I was working on average 50 hours a week. Other years I was working 30 hours a week. To whatever extent it ennobled or degraded me, it's not exactly clear and it, it was very little, right? I know many people who work very hard and they work long hours and I'm not exactly clear, like how specifically would they be less noble if they worked 50 hours a week instead of 60 and took those extra 10 hours and devoted more time to friends and family. Like, I see strengths and weaknesses in having lavish public goods and meager public goods. You know, I, I, I see strengths and weaknesses in working 60 hours a week versus 20 hours a week. I don't see how people are inherently rendered bigger or smaller or you know, more superior or inferior by the number of hours that they work. Like, how are citizens rendered smaller or bigger by, say, government regulations about shopping hours and, you know, minimum vacation times? You know, every Australian gets a minimum of a month's holiday a year. I, I'm just not aware. I didn't see how that morally diminishes Australians. Like, if you vote for government to tax to provide more lavish social services and public goods instead of your giving that money to charity and volunteering, like... Why is it inherently inferior if the government does it as opposed to private volunteer organizations? I'm open to it, right? You can make an argument for it, but I don't think it's crystal clear. So Dennis Prager says uh, it was conservative governments who are far more supportive of the war efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan compared to left-wing governments of the same country. So as soon as the socialists won in Spain, they withdrew all their forces from Iraq and the new center-left government in Japan has promised to stop helping the war effort in Afghanistan. This is 2009. Well, it seems to me that those lefties were right and 
the conservatives were wrong. All right. I checked Wikipedia. Right, the following governments spend the lowest percentage of their GDP on government services. Somalia, Turkmenistan, Haiti, Venezuela, Sudan, Iran. This is me and you. Equatorial Guinea, and we are running. Bangladesh, Ethiopia, to change the world. Yemen, Guinea, Nigeria, Guatemala. All right, do you wish that your country was more like Somalia, Turkmenistan, Haiti, Venezuela, Sudan, Iran, Equatorial Guinea, Bangladesh, Ethiopia, Yemen, Guinea, Nigeria, Guatemala? These are the countries that most dramatically differ from the United States in the low levels of government spending as a percentage of the GDP. So do you wish you were more like these countries? Do you associate in your mind Somalis, Turkmenistanis, Haitians, Venezuelans, Sudanese, Iranians, Guineans, Bangladeshis, Ethiopians, Yemenites, Guineans, Nigerians, and Guatemalans with being like particularly elevated, lofty, impressive, you know, super moral you know, people. I, I don't see it, right? You want low government, you want small government, then Somalia is your place. You want small government, Turkmenistan is your place. You're looking for low government spending, Haiti is your place. You want small government? You're a small government conservative. Venezuela, Sudan, Iran, Guinea, Bangladesh, Ethiopia, Yemen, Guinea, Nigeria, Guatemala. Those are your places. Really? That's what you want? Do you really want to operate like those countries? Like, why on earth would you think citizens in those countries are just so much more big-souled, so much more moral, so much more impressive than Americans? The only countries that have distinctly lower government spending than the United States, though not as low as the countries I just listed, that Americans you know, might like and respect are Singapore, Taiwan, Costa Rica, Ireland, and Peru. So now that I think about it, yeah, I, I, I just immediately associate, in my mind, the citizens of Singapore, Taiwan, Costa Rica, Ireland, and Peru, just the most morally impressive. Now, of course, the Taiwanese can't be bothered to mount much of defense of their own country. But really, you really think that citizens of Singapore, Taiwan, Costa Rica, Ireland, and Peru are just a shining example that we should be following. Uh, do, you, do you really consider these countries just dramatically superior to your own because they have less government spending? Right. Here are the countries that spend substantially more on government as a percentage of GDP than the United States. And I'm going to list these countries in ascending order of government spending as a percentage of the GDP. Right, Norway, Latvia, Cyprus, Estonia, Malta, Canada, the Maldives, Montenegro, New Zealand, Brazil, Luxembourg, Serbia, Japan, Poland, Slovakia, Netherlands, Vanuatu, Czech Republic, United Kingdom, Croatia, Portugal, Tonga, Iceland, Slovenia, Sweden, Spain, Denmark, Germany, Hungary, Austria, Belgium, Finland, Greece, Italy, France, Ukraine. All right. So that was in ascending order. So the countries that spend the most of their GDP and government spending now going in descending order. Ukraine. I thought Ukrainians were the good guys. France. Boy, those French. So unimpressive. What a 
poor quality of life they have because of all that big government. Italy, Greece, Finland, Belgium, Austria, Hungary, Germany, Denmark, Spain, Sweden, Slovenia, Iceland. None of these places seem like hell holes, right? Aside from Ukraine because it's fighting war. But France, Italy, Greece, Finland, Belgium, Austria, Hungary, Germany, Denmark, Spain, Sweden, Slovenia, Iceland, Tonga, Portugal, Croatia, United Kingdom, Czech Republic, Vanuatu, Netherlands, Slovakia, Poland, Japan, Serbia, Luxembourg, Brazil, New Zealand, Montenegro, Maldives, Canada, Malta, Estonia, Cyprus, Latvia, Norway. Really, these are hell holes. These are just inferior people to us. I don't see it. But uh, perhaps that's just me. You know, I must be missing something. So if you can elaborate on exactly how increasing or decreasing the size of government services uh, renders people more or less moral. Now, I want to hear that argument. You know, I'm wrong all the time. I've changed my mind all the time. Not a biggie. By what is happening. And I totally understand that. People want, in my case, Dennis Prager's take on X, Y, or Z. And the news is really interesting. I mean, oh, oh, it's relentless. I, as a host, I'm learning so much oh, by doing oh, this about I, the world. Isn't it the truth? Oh, oh, yes. And I feel, I it's feel like... It's the ultimate soap opera. Oh, That's is. how I think of it. The and, ongoing drama. And you know, it really shows how relentless our job is because last week I was talking about an impending railroad strike and literally five minutes before I went on air, the Senate voted to strike down a specific measure, 52 to 48. And so again, five minutes before I go on air, I have to learn that fact. So you just, you constantly have to be clued in, checking your phone, checking your email. So... It's, it's kind so, of a new so are people, realm of life are for me. people writing in? Are they becoming aware of Timeless? Yes. It's brand new. I don't expect it. Yes, look, it's going to, I mean. Does, you have to be patient. I have to be patient. That's right. But it, we're going to do what we're looking. Did, did you go on Ben Shapiro yet? I'm going on him tomorrow. Well, that's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a huge built-in audience. I mean, I, I do a lot with Daily Wire, and I have great affection and respect for them. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you, him. Well, you should be. I mean, that's that's a big deal. I know, and he's he's one of the people who really influenced me and conti- obviously I, continues to influence reason. me. You know, people should know how much we root for each other. Oh. People, there is zero competition, let's say, between Daily Wire and PragerU. Zero. I am thrilled for their success. They are thrilled for our success. They they use me for some of their biggest events, and, and PragerU is completely happy about that, and vice versa. Uh, you know, you, you, may, you probably don't know. The guy who runs Daily Wire is not Ben. Just as I don't run PragerU. Uh, I, uh, I'm obviously important, play an important role there. Right. Marissa runs it. Well, and, and Alan. Alan. Marissa and Alan, yes. So uh, the guy who runs it is Jeremy Boring, who is, uh, I met him years ago. And I knew him in the capacity of being, uh, I, I believe at the time, he was a, a, a pastor. He's a committed... Oh, really? Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. But he, I didn't know he was a... So, let's be honest, all right. PragerU gets an overwhelming majority of his views through uh, buying them. Uh, Daily Wire, right, and, and you know almost all the, the right-wing, uh, middle-brow, low-brow uh, organizations like it, 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 they're just peddling victimization and peddling poison and you know pushing civil war uh but they get billions of views and they got status and money and uh somehow chuck johnson may be under something right these are you know lavishly funded operations when you when you offer a 50 million dollar contract to stephen crowder for four years right that's not a, a business primarily a business deal there's something else going on about you know buying influence I don't know if it's the, the Chinese or who's who's buying influence through these these you know shoddy lowbrow operations that you know rely on manipulation and the destruction of people, like diminishing people, right? Making them angrier, less happy, less effective in life. 
pastor. Yes. He, so we would always talk theology. And I knew I am with a deep and good man. That's all I thought about Jeremy Boring. I still think, of course, he is. He's deep. Yeah, I think a lot of these people are wonderful people. All right. But what they're doing is making America worse. Right. On net, collectively, they're making America worse. They're making their viewers dumber and more angry, less effective, less happy, less functional. Wonderful people doing terrible things. Someone should write a book. You know, why do great people do bad things to so many and reap such rewards? Deep and, 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 and good. But I didn't know. The man's a bloody genius. I mean, what he, he has built. Oh, the Daily, uh, the Daily Wire. It has, you know that it now has a million paid subscribers? I'm one of them. Yeah. Oh, oh guess what? When you get, you know, millions upon millions of dollars you know, subsidizing you, uh, you know, I don't know uh, exactly you know, how much of that money, you know, originates from China. But you can do amazing things. All right. I could, I could buy views. All right. There are ways that you can buy views on YouTube that YouTube doesn't, apparently doesn't have a problem with. Right. I could buy ads that would autoplay my videos and I could get millions of views and then I could come back to you and say, you know, we're changing America, guys. All right. If I just uh, just played the game. Yep. Me too. Well, I remember, and I, I know I've said this on this program before, but it just, it blew me away. When I worked for you two summers ago, it was right when Candace Owens announced that she was leaving PragerU and going to the Daily Wire. And so I asked you, how do you feel about that? And you just like, you were like, it's great. It's great. You, it was like such a nonchalant like yes. reaction. And I just, I couldn't believe it of because course, I know. I, I, I've I, never been in an environment. We're all in it for the ideal. We're all rowing in the same boat. Oh, exactly. And so yes. I, I have a story to tell that I have never, I don't think I've ever told publicly, but I was actually going to save it for um, when and if I speak at a, a PragerU uh, gala or conference, but I want to tell it now because it's relevant to this conversation. So as many of you know, uh, back in 2020, I had uh, a really difficult two weeks of my life after I first went on your yeah, I Dennis's... I tell that story all the time. Yes, after I went on Dennis's radio show for the first time, it went online. All these people at my school canceled me. I convinced myself that I was never going to get a job, never going to get married. I thought I had, you know, it was, I felt like, honestly, like I had committed a crime. It was that bad. So for two weeks, I was just inconsolable. But I had agreed to do a PragerU Stories of Us at the beginning of those two weeks. So I wasn't totally in the depression, but I was about like halfway through the depression. But Nevertheless, I still went to PragerU. I had agreed to this commitment to film a stories of us. And so I went, by the way, I'm so sorry. There is a huge spider crawling behind you. I don't care. No, you got to smush it. I'm terrified. Oh, that's sad. I never kill spiders. It's a policy. No, no, no. It's, it's a daddy long. I'm sorry. I'm terrified of spiders. You got to kill this. That guy's bothering you? Yeah, I'm sorry. You got to whack it. All right. Wait, and I won't whack it. I'll, I'll get rid of it. But I won't, no, no. I'll, I'll put him in a glass. <laughs> Oh my, my God! Yes. You guys, I, I am really scared of spiders. No, 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 it's going to distract me the whole time. I'm sorry. No, we, we can. I will. I will get rid of it. Okay. Here. All right, young man. All right. I'm going to bring it to you, Sean. Oh God. We'll take a quick Just break. Just kill it. I'm not killing. Okay. All right. Let's go. What do you? What do you? Oh, okay. I thought you were going to pick it up. No, no, no. I'm going to now. Give me a piece of paper. We don't have. Oh, okay. Yes, I'll slide a piece of paper okay. in, and then all will be good. Okay. How do you know it's in there? <laughs> the laws of physics dictate. Well, where are you going to put it? I'm giving it to Sean. What is he going to do with it? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know. This is a very real moment on the Dennis and Ju Wait, oh God, you should see what's going on. Sean took it. <laughs> oh, now Dennis can't get back in. Oh, okay, you can't get back lost. in. He just wanted me to know. Wait. <laughs> he wants this all. <laughs> Wait, Sean, what did you do with it? That stays in. He really wants it in. That's what did, really what did he do with the spider? What? what I you gave it to our spider specialist? Fine. Okay. Wait, I'm, wait, so what? just for the record, oh, see, the reason you have to appreciate spiders because they take care of the insects. They get rid of them. They're the really obnoxious ones like mosquitoes. Dennis, I'm t I can't deal with spiders. <laughs> it, it, it is. 
It is totally understandable. A lot of people, what is it called? Arachnophobia. Arachnophobia, yeah, yeah. Usually I'm professional and I let stuff like that go. But I it have distracts one phobia. Me the entire time. I have leftophobia. That's my one phobia. Well. Okay, so even if you don't like Dennis Prager, this is, this is a genuinely sweet, sweet show. I haven't listened to Prager for years. I you know, disagree with you know, so much of what he says. I have you know, very strong critiques of Prager, but uh, I, I enjoy listening to his show with uh, Julie Hartman. Ah, that's it. Take care. Bye-bye. Now, listen to Sarah, Sarah Brightman and, and the song Running. It's the greatest song ever, right? Sarah Brightman is the greatest singer ever. She's the best-selling uh, soprano in the world. I mean, she's just got an amazing voice and running. I've listened to that song 50 times today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.